Welcome to episode four of the Ohio Heritage Music Project. My name is Clint Holly, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, myself and other members of Roots of American Music travel to a small town on the Ohio River called Ripley, Ohio. Located about 50 miles east of Cincinnati, Ripley was once an abolitionist stronghold. In this episode, we are going to explore the lives of two abolitionists, Reverend John Rankin and John Parker, both residents of Ripley, Ohio from the 1820s until the Civil War. We have a lot of great interviews lined up for this podcast. We spoke to Carl Westmoreland from the Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, Betty Campbell, who runs the John Rankin House in Ripley, Ohio, and Dewey Scott, who is a docent at the John Parker House in Ripley, Ohio. Our featured musical artist today is rising singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia. She brings a great perspective to this episode, and we speak to her also and get some insight from her as to what it was like playing on the property of the John Rankin House. The original concept for this episode was presented by Artistic Director of Roots of American Music, Kevin Richards. And out of all the episodes that we've done so far, I believe this one to be the most challenging and thought-provoking. They say that every journey starts with one step, and this journey has been no different. So we're going to call this episode Journey to Ripley, Many Steps to Freedom, as it tells the story of the Underground Railroad, the Ohio River, John Rankin, and John Parker. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating story and listen to some great music. My journey to Ripley began in 2018 when Roots of American Music was awarded a grant by the Ohio Arts Council to develop a podcast based around the concept of telling the story of a historic place or building. We selected four sites in the state of Ohio and told the story of that place through interviews and music. Artistic Director of Roots of American Music, Kevin Richards, brought the idea of telling the John Rankin story to the table early. He had already forged some of the necessary partnerships needed to make this story happen since it was a longer distance from Cleveland, Ohio than our other stories. We had to make sure the entire production could be pulled off in the course of one evening and one full afternoon. This was a challenge and it took a van load of gear and a lot of cooperative people to make it happen. In the end, we all made it back to Cleveland in one piece. We had a great time. We met some great new friends and we learned a lot. We learned a lot about people and we learned a lot about history. So let's take that trip to Ripley all over again. Ripley, Ohio is a small town. It's on the north bank of the Ohio River. It's right across from Kentucky. And this is important later on in our story because Ohio is a free state and Kentucky is a slave state. And the Ohio River is a different beast at this time. According to all the accounts that I found, it was a shallower, narrower river than it is now. And sometimes in the wintertime, it would even freeze. The city of Ripley is founded by a gentleman named James Pogue, who's a Revolutionary War veteran who receives a thousand acre land grant as payment for his services in the in the army. And he comes with other veterans from the state of Virginia to claim their land grants, and when they get to Ohio, they free their slaves that they have with them. Now, the town is laid out in 1812 as Staunton, Ohio, and that's also the name of where uh, James Pogue was from in Virginia, but it's renamed in 1816 as Ripley to honor a uh, general in the War of 1812. 
Because of this location on the river, Ripley becomes a hotspot for fugitive slaves crossing from slave-owning Kentucky into the free state of Ohio. And along with some like-minded people who are living in Ripley, become the basis and one of the most important parts of what is to become the Underground Railroad. Now, our first major character we're going to meet today is John Rankin. He becomes the Reverend John Rankin, and he's a Presbyterian. He's born in February of 1793 uh, down in Tennessee. He becomes a Presbyterian minister, and while he's uh, reading the Bible, he comes to the conclusion that the Bible in no way can support the idea of owning another person. He begins to preach this idea from the pulpit, and let's say the reception was a bit frosty. The elders of the church uh, tell John Rankin that if he wants to continue to preach this, that he should probably leave the state of Tennessee. Our new friend, Betty Campbell, knows all these stories by heart. Why? She runs the John Rankin house in Ripley, Ohio, and she tells these stories to hundreds, if not thousands of people every year. So let's listen to her talk about how John Rankin and his family made their way from Tennessee to Ripley, Ohio. This interview is great because it was recorded inside the John Rankin house, and you can hear the ambiance of the house and all that. But uh, Betty was in her element, and over the course of this podcast, you're going to hear a lot from Betty, and her nuggets of information are well worth paying attention to. Reverend John Rankin and his wife, Jean, left their home state of Tennessee because of their opposition to slavery. They did not want to raise their family, their children, in a state that would permit slavery. So they left their home state of Tennessee, moved to Kentucky, and he served as a Presbyterian minister uh, around the Carlisle, Kentucky area for several years. And then I think he was encouraged to move on. And so, <laughs> right. and so in 1822, he accepted the call to become the minister of the Presbyterian Church here in Ripley, Ohio. And it's still an active church congregation today. Really? So in 1822, John Rankin accepts this position as Presbyterian minister in Ripley, Ohio. And he builds a house at 220 Front Street, which is right by the river. And around this time also, he starts writing letters to his brother, on the topic of abolitionism. The local newspaper prints these letters and his reputation amongst abolitionists and pro-slavery people starts to rise. And every time a slave disappears from Kentucky, people are beating on his door to figure out what happened. So eventually in 1829, John Rankin builds a house on a 540 foot hill overlooking the city, and Betty Campbell tells us more about this house. This historic 1829 house sits on a hill overlooking the village of Ripley, the Ohio River, and the Kentucky Hills. When John Rankin came to Ripley in 1822, he lived in a house along the river on what we call Front Street. Okay. And then he ended up with a large family. The Rankins had 13 children, nine sons, and four daughters. Wow. And so the little house just wouldn't take care of a growing family. So he purchased this 60-plus acre hillside farm and built his brick house and moved here in 1829. And the family lived here until 1866. There's a second major character to our story about Ripley. He's another abolitionist, and his name is John Parker. Now, John Parker's background is completely different from John Rankin. John Parker is a free black man living in Ohio. He was once a slave and bought his way out of slavery and then ended up spending the rest of his life trying to help other people. We met Dewey Scott, 
who's a docent at the John Parker House at 300 Front Street in Ripley, Ohio, and he tells us about John Parker's background. Now, tell us about John Parker, who who he was, where he came from. He was um, a free black man living in, in Ohio, mm-hmm. right? John Parker was a slave, um, and as a boy of eight years old, he was sold. Uh, he was actually sold twice, and he ended up with a outfit, a slave outfit that were moving slaves from the East Coast to the South to resell them, where they made four, five, six times as much money as purchased. And uh, he was resold to a doctor in Mobile, Alabama. Now, as a property of the doctor, he was a livery maid. He took care of the horses. Now, the doctor suggested that in order to keep himself from going to the cotton fields of the Deep South, it would be wise if he were to learn a trade, which he did. He learned how to make metal pieces in a foundry. Found that he had a specific talent uh, in the fact that he could make the molds better than the next fella. Now, he used his talent to work in foundries all across uh, Mobile and some in New Orleans. Okay. Where he eventually purchased his freedom at age 18. Uh, He became a free man. Uh, He he moved north where you had to get out of the south if you were a free man. They did not want you to hang around to show the other blacks what it was like to be a free person. So he moved from Mobile, Alabama to um, New Albany, Indiana, which is opposite Louisville on the Ohio River. And he worked in a foundry there for 11 months, ended up in uh, Cincinnati. Okay. Where he met a gentleman who told him about two young girls that wanted to be free in Maysville. He came to Maysville to help those young ladies. And when he brought them to Ripley, just as he was instructed, he was introduced to the Underground Railroad. He saw how it worked, who did what and why. And as um, those two young girls were leaving to gain their freedom, um, he knew that this is what he wanted to do. Wow. So he moved here to Ripley, and he started immediately his work on the Underground Railroad. During his tenure uh, on the Underground Railroad, it's estimated that he moved some 300 to uh, 900 slaves. Our featured artist for this episode is up-and-coming singer-songwriter Amethyst Kia. Amethyst is from Johnson City, Tennessee, and I've known about her work for a few years now. When the chance came to be able to book her for this program in Ripley, Ohio, Roots of American Music jumped at the chance. We know that her career is on the upswing, and in a year or so, she might not have the time to come and do a small program like this. So it was a very special opportunity, and things really came together on that day from the direct-to-disc recording that we did in the Rankin Visitor Center. We did a program that almost 100 people attended where Amethyst and some other people played music and spoke about uh, John Rankin and John Parker. It was a very special day, and she brought three great songs to the table to record directly to disc with the Ernest Tube crew. The first song that we're going to listen to is called Trouble So Hard, and we're talking about slavery here. So uh, I think this is a great way to kind of break the ice with Amethyst. And we also talked to Amethyst for this particular podcast inside the John Rankin house. And we got some of her insights as to how she felt about being there. So let's listen to her talk about the John Rankin house first and then let her sing the song Trouble So Hard. You know, I looked out, I looked out over the river and I looked down the stairs and just thinking about all the people, all the... All the people, all the all the human beings that came up these stairs and were able to find shelter and hope, you know, thanks to the Rankins and and um, and all the other abolitionists involved. 
Um, it's just, I mean, it's a really powerful moment. Like I said, I've never been in a space like this and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel walking in, but I just, I don't know. There's like a, I mean, there's, it's very much, it's like a spiritual sort of experience for me at the moment, just to be able to be in this place and knowing that so many people's lives were saved and changed, you know, after such a, having the horrific life of being not, of not being able to be your own person, you know, to not have your personhood respected and to know that they were able to find hope is really touching. True. 
So we've set up an interesting dynamic here. Now we have two different men from radically different backgrounds that both believe that enslaving your fellow human being is a bad thing. And this is perhaps where they diverge. John Rankin is a man of God. He's a preacher. He uses his bully pulpit as a way to spread his message of abolitionism. John Parker, on the other hand, is a self-made man, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He's uh, wealthy by the standards of the day, and he's got a different uh, attitude about this. He believes in direct action. So over the next few clips, we're going to compare and contrast these men and their styles and what they brought to the table of abolitionism and to Ripley, Ohio. Let's start with John Parker. Now, we already know that John Parker was born into slavery, buys himself his freedom, moves to Cincinnati, and then winds up in Ripley, Ohio after an experience with the Underground Railroad. Now, John Parker had certain skills. He worked in uh, foundries, and he was a master mold maker, and he was very good at what he did. So he comes to Ripley, Ohio, and he starts a foundry, and he becomes a wealthy man. But by night, John Parker becomes what they call an extractor. He's the kind of person that will get in his boat and cross the Ohio River and go and get slaves and bring them back to the free state of Ohio. Now think about this. John Parker is a black man in a boat going to a slave state. He knows very well that if he gets caught, there's all really only one outcome, and that's his death. Let's build a more complete picture of John Parker now by listening to clips from both Dewey Scott and Betty Campbell about his life and what he did in his quote-unquote spare time. Now, he was, uh, John Parker also was one of the few black men prior to 1800, in the 1800s that had patents to, uh, to his name, correct? Mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the patents and what he did. On the 1890 census, the, there were eight millionaires listed in Ripley. John Parker was listed on the, very, on the ninth, as the ninth wealthiest person. Wow. He was not a millionaire, but he was a very wealthy man, and his family did not need of a thing. Now, he would advertise his wares from his foundry in the newspapers across the United States, and he would advertise very heavily. Uh, one of his patents was a tobacco press, which uh, was his cash cow. Okay. And they still use it today in the tobacco industry. Really? Mm-hmm. There were only six people, six blacks in the 1800s to produce a, a patent in the 1800s, and John Parker was one of them. Now, his press was because it used a screw? Was that What, what was the mechanics behind the, the, uh, the press? His, his press, the importance of it was that it was portable. Okay. And you could take the tobacco press to the tobacco. Okay. Whereas opposed to most press were uh, located in a... There were large press located in a barn, and you had to bring all your tobacco in to, to be pressed. To be pressed, right. So right. an independent person could buy this smaller press and use that and not have to go pay somebody to do that job for them. Right. Okay, interesting. Right. And the, the nature of the carrying the tobacco, it's not that it was heavy, it's just that it was bulky. Okay. And when loaded on a skid, it took three or six people to lift it. Three on either side, and as I say, not because it was so heavy, it's just it was so bulky. Right. You know, but once it's loaded into a barrel, that barrel can be turned on its side, and one man can push it. Roll it. Right. Interesting. By day, he's this well-respected businessman. He's a foundry man. And at night, he is slipping back across the Ohio River in his skiff, and by prior arrangements, is bringing fugitives 
out of Kentucky, which was extremely daring. Here's a man who had already bought his own freedom after years in slavery and uh, has a, a very nice home, has a family, a thriving business, but puts all that on the line to go back into Kentucky because if he or any other conductor were caught then and convicted in court in Maysville, Kentucky, then they would face uh, a fine and as long as six months in jail. Wow. So these short clips give you kind of an idea, I think, of what John Parker was like with his hands-on aspect of the Underground Railroad. But there's a story that Dewey Scott relays to me and Kevin Richards about John Parker going and helping a family actually extract their baby from Kentucky from the room of the owner that gives you goosebumps. So this clip is a little bit longer, but sit tight and enjoy this story from Dewey Scott about John Parker and his heroic efforts to extract people from Kentucky. The most famous extractor of the time period was Harriet Tubman, for she would go into Virginia and she would bring slaves from Virginia. There are very, very few black extractors, for extracting is extremely dangerous. John Parker would go into Kentucky and he would bring the slaves from Kentucky to Ohio, which he called his promised land. Extremely dangerous, for had he been caught any given night, the only answer would have been a rope. Wow. Wow. Uh, John Parker operated his foundry during the antebellum period, and there was a gentleman that worked for him um, as a molder, as a matter of fact, uh, that lived in the plantation across the river. Now, this plantation could be seen from John Parker's bedroom window. He was quite familiar with this place. Um, He could look out of his windows and could see the comings and going of all the people that uh, lived and worked on the plantation. Now, Jim would come to work with for John Parker every morning. John Parker at one time employed 25 people, both black and white. Now, he used to chide him about not being able to run off his slaves. Now, John denied it that he even did this, that he was even a part of this type of action. But Strove kept after him, saying that I'll bet you can't run off our slaves and so forth. All the while, John Parker was thinking this very same thing. So one night, mid-March, he got into his rowboat and rowed across to the plantation where he hid behind a bush behind the slave quarters and watched the comings and goings. And as it got towards dusk, he called a, a gentleman who was rushing back to his quarters because you had to be in your quarters before dark. Right. Uh, rushing back to his quarters. He called him over to the bush that he was hiding in and told him that he could get him out of here if he's ready to go right now. The gentleman told him that he was not unable to go and that he wasn't thinking about it simply because he had a wife who was pregnant and she was due any minute. And he was not going to leave his wife. And so there was a, someone came up behind the two of them as they talked and a scuffle ensued. John, the slave ran to his quarters. Now John Parker finally got away from this gentleman and got down to his boat and got back home. He waited until mid-June when all the foliage and everything was out and it was a little bit more concealment. And he went back over to the same spot and waited. And the gentleman heading to his quarters, same gentleman, about the same time of evening, John Parker called him over and said, let's go, I got the boat. He says, we can't leave. I can't leave because my wife had the baby. And they knew it was you that was over here that night. And so they make us bring the baby into the owner's quarters every night, and it sleeps at the foot of the owner's bed, so that we don't, so that we will not run off. And so, 
John uh, suggested that they should go in there and get the baby in the, in the sleep. And they said, there's no way in the world, for he sleeps with two horse pistols. Now, I don't know whether you guys are familiar with the firearms, but the only thing that I could refer find referring to a horse pistol is the walker coat. Okay. Which is a gigantic gun. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, he had two of those that were on a three-legged stool in the bedroom and threatened to shoot anyone that would come into his bedroom. Now, John Parker got all the information of, to, of the house, the layout and so forth, from the mother, for she was a, per, a worker in the house, and she knew the layout. Now, John snuck in there on hands and knees in the middle of the night when he got to the bedroom. Uh, the place was just as she had described. The baby was at the foot of the bed on her side. There were three-legged stools on either side. Both were holding candles. On the mother's side, or on the, the woman's, woman's side, the candle had went out. But the shoe was shining brightly on his side with the two horse pistols. Now, there was a pillow in the bas a pillow and a blanket and the baby in the bassinet. He picked up the pillow and sh shied it at the three-legged stool that held the candle and the pistols and hit it. Wow. It went over. The candle went out. The room shut down dark. He grabbed the baby, and as soon as he picked up the baby, he started hollering, for he knew that the baby would. And he started hollering, I got the baby. If you want your baby, come with me. I got the baby. And he ran out the front door hollering the same thing, I got the baby, and if you want your baby, come with me. And he ran down the hill towards the boat where the boats were parked, and he sh shied their boat out into the river for the current to pick up and take away. He got into his and rode upstream towards Ripley. It was only a little ways uh, where he crossed and came back across to Ripley. Dropped the family off at the Bank Hotel, which is still located on Main Street. It's not a hotel, quite naturally. It's right. an apartment house. Okay. But it's still located on Front Street. I'm sorry, not Main Street, but Front Street. He dropped the family off there and made a beeline to his house where he immediately got into his um, night clothes and pretended that he had been in bed, <laughs> for he knew that the strokes were going to come knocking at his front door, which they did. They were knocking and pounding and hollering and screaming that they want their slaves back, and John Parker, we know you did this uh, in the middle of the night. So he finally answered the call and went down to see what the commotion was and said that he had nothing to do with what they're talking about. He asked them if he wanted to come in and search the house, which they did. And he pointed out places where someone could be hidden. <laughs> For he knew that as long as they were in that house, their slaves were getting further away. Getting further away, right. right. <laughs> exactly. Great story. Okay. But this isn't the end of that story. John Parker leaves something behind that could get him in a whole lot of trouble. So let's let Dewey Scott finish up this story and tell us what he left behind and what happened. Now... In the middle A, in the middle of everything, John Parker had on a new pair of boots before this whole thing started. He had given, taken them off and given to the father to hold, for he did not want to sneak around with these stiff boots on. So, right. Okay. So in the excitement and everything of running to the river, the father dropped the boots. <laughs> so Jim Strofe appeared the next morning, knocking on John Parker's door, and he says, we've got you now. And from behind his back, he produced those very boots. 
He says, I'm going to go to the six shoemakers in Ripley and I will find out who made these for you. For he knew that they were relatively new. Okay. So Strofe left, went to all six shoemakers. Nobody gave up John Parker. Really? Right. Okay. Now, as I say, I've been, I'm in my 10th year now. When I was in about year four, maybe five, somewhere in that area, a gentleman came in being pushed by a nurse in a wheelchair. And he signed the register Strofe. And I saw this over his shoulder. And I, I thought, Strofe, I knew that there were some black strofes here and around Ripley. And I says, sir, are you familiar with the baby story? And he said, listen, son, that baby was my great-great-grandfather. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Thank that's you. pretty amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, that's a great story. Detail. That was wonderful. From these stories, I think you get a pretty good idea of what John Parker was all about and what his attitude was towards the Underground Railroad and how to get people out of the slave states and into Ohio and possibly all the way up to Canada. And John Rankin, on the other hand, he took a different approach. He was a man of the cloth. He spent a lot of years writing about abolitionism, and he toured the United States a lot. He was part of the establishment of networks around the country that promoted abolition, and he took a more kind of academic approach to uh, getting uh, people free. But he also bought this property on a 540-foot hill above the town of Ripley, and he had a virtual army with nine sons and four daughters a lot of who participated in all of the activities uh, surrounding the Underground Railroad. John Rankin's house becomes a beacon because it's so high above the river and it can be seen from Kentucky. And there's a lot of anecdotes out there talking about a lamp in the window and how this lamp, when lit, was a beacon to people escaping from Kentucky into Ohio. And if they could make it to the lamp, they would find friendly people that would hide them and help transport them to the next stop on the Underground Railroad. So let's put together a series of stories here talking about John Rankin and his approach to abolitionism that uh, contrast really nicely with John Parker and kind of complete the story of Ripley. Now tell us about the, the lamp, and, and obviously since this is audio, we're, we're on a hill, and it's a very large hill overlooking, you can basically see the entire city. Did he, did he choose this location because of the hill and because like he, there was people that wanted to burn his house down so he could see people coming, or, or was it just such a good deal that he, this is what he bought? Well, we, we believe that he chose this hillside location for a couple of reasons. It was a farm. He could provide for the needs of his family. They had large vegetable gardens. They had livestock. Um, they were raising crops here, and they, they could provide for their family, but also for the view, the vantage point, this hillside location offered him, because as I said, he could see from this location all the activity down in the village of Ripley, out on the Ohio River and on the Kentucky shoreline. And in his role as an underground railroad conductor, Rankin felt it was important for him to have this advantage. Right. Now tell us about the lamp and the, uh, the vantage point helped other people see this, this lantern that was in the window. Right. So tell us about uh, that. The Rankins write that they always kept a light of some sort burning in one of their front windows overlooking the Ohio River. And that was used as a guide or a beacon, if you will, to fugitives escaping out of Kentucky. They were told if you make it 
to the Ohio River around Ripley in your escape, look for the house on the hill and the light in the window. While the Roots of American crew was in Ripley, Ohio, and inside the John Rankin house, I had a handheld recorder, and I captured this great exchange between Kevin Richards and Betty Campbell talking about the house, the light, the steps in front of the house, and how the town of Ripley was viewed during the Civil War. John Rankin, he lived to see the end of slavery, correct? Yes. 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 So when did he, when did he eventually pass away? He, he made it to like 82 years old or something uh, like that, didn't he? Reverend Rankin lived to be 93 years old. 93 years old. Wow. Betty, I understand there were multiple spots in the house that um, Rankin, he would hide slaves in. I think there were a couple spots, and then there was maybe even a barn. Maybe you could talk about that. Well, in the writings of Reverend Rankin and of his sons that they wrote in later years, they talk about hiding fugitive slaves in a large barn that was on the west side of the house. The barn had a wooden floor and a trap door in the floor and a lot of dirt dug out where they could hide several people. Um, I grew up in Ripley and grew up hearing stories of the Rankins hiding people in their house in the attic in the cellar and they they may very well have hidden slaves in the house uh, but there's no written evidence and on our tours for our visitors at the John Rankin House, we try to tell the most accurate story that we can. So we can say with certainty they were hiding fugitives in this barn, uh, but as far as hiding people in the house, probably they did, but we can't say with certainty that they did. That they, that yeah. they did. And, and we're, we're sitting up high and we're looking down on the Ohio River. As, as we look out the window right now, we can see the river, we can see the town of Ripley, but we also see these eagles and these uh, <laughs> wild birds, and it's almost like we're in the eagle's nest right yes. now, right. looking down. And uh, but, but I see the steps, and there's these... Maybe, maybe you could talk about... That's okay. that stairway, I think. Well, that's... part of, of the experience for our visitors is, if they wish, is we have uh, 150-plus wooden steps that go down in front of the house, and they end um, uh, at a landing, and then from the landing you can walk a trail, and it ends up about four streets back from the river. And this is about the third set of wooden steps that has been built here. We believe that when the Rankins lived here, um, there was actually an original stone set of steps. But then later on, wooden steps were built. And fugitives uh, you know, coming to find shelter at the Rankin house would, may have climbed the steps. Uh, my personal belief is that if they realized the reputation this family had they probably would have just skirted around to the side of the house and, and, and climbed up the hill and not used the steps because that was a very direct... Pretty obvious. Obvious right. line to the house. Right. In fact, the uh, town of Ripley, as the years go by, developed such a reputation as an abolitionist stronghold that during the Civil War, Confederate officers threatened to burn Ripley to the ground and referred to Ripley as, quote, that abolitionist hellhole. (laughs) (laughs) These clips give us a pretty good idea of who John Parker and John Rankin were and what their role was in Ripley and the Underground Railroad. So let's take a break and listen to some music from our featured artist, Amethyst Kia. Amethyst brought a song with her called Polly Ann's Hammer, which is a twist on the classic John Henry song, and it's told from John Henry's significant other's point of view. 
and she was a female. So let's talk just for a brief moment about the the women in the lives of John Parker and John Rankin. They were both married. They both had families. John Rankin had a large family. He had 13 children, nine sons, and four daughters. And John Parker had, uh, by today's standards, still a large family. He had uh, six sons and daughters, all of whom went on to be highly educated uh, people. So let's listen to Amethyst talk about the song Polly Ann's Hammer for a moment and then let her sing a song devoted to the females in the lives of everybody who was out there working for abolition because they were a big part of this too. One of the stories we wanted to tell out of John Henry's story was Polly Ann's story. Um, There's a verse with Polly Ann where... You know, she she goes into she goes to work for John Henry when he's sick and she drives steel, you know, to help build the railroads. She drives steels like a man is what the verse says. Right. And so we, we decided, well, we want to write Polly Ann's story. And with talking about Polly Ann and talking about her story, you know, her her integral role as being, a, uh, you know, being the wife, being a homemaker, um, you know, probably having having children and then at the same time also going in to work. To like, to to drive steel, swing a hammer like a you man, know? Right. and and I really feel like um, you know it's stories like that that you know stories like that you know make me think about um, are so like easily connected to um, you know what when the when the slaves got the courage to be able to leave to know that they could come to a place like the Rankin House. <laughs>
great perspective there from Amethyst Kia and her song Pollyann's Hammer, a great tribute to all the women out there working just as hard as the men. So as we move into the final chapter of our story on Ripley, Ohio, and John Rankin and John Parker, uh, I think we know what happens. The Civil War eventually happens, and slavery is abolished, and the abolitionists uh, claim victory. But, uh, you know, there's still a lot of problems in America on the issue of race. And I think uh, some of the people we talk to, they talk about cooperation a lot, and they talk about how people don't listen to each other and how people don't talk to each other and how we don't talk about the history. And one of the people that we met on this trip to Ripley was a very interesting uh, gentleman named Carl Westmoreland, and he's a historian at the uh, Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's got a lot of perspective on a lot of different topics. So we sat down with him one evening in a hotel room and talked to him for over two and a half hours. And we got a lot of great insight and information from Carl about the Underground Railroad Ripley and what Ripley means to him personally. And he also came to a program that we presented at the John Rankin Visitors Center and gave an impassioned speech about the state of America and how people need to cooperate for us all to move forward. So let's start digging into all of this and let's wrap up the story about John Parker and John Rankin with some clips from Betty Campbell and Dewey Scott to talk about their cooperation. And then we're going to move into the topic of what's going on in America now. And we're going to really listen to Carl Westmoreland and some of the things that he said. So uh, listen to Betty and and Dewey here, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Carl Westmoreland and uh, get into the things that he has to say. The, The town of Ripley was known and developed a reputation for having a large network of men and women, black and white, who were underground railroad conductors. Okay. And he was, was he friends with John Parker? Was there any connection between them other than the Underground Railroad connection? Well, by the time John Parker comes to Ripley, Ohio, in the early 1850s, Reverend Rankin uh, has been here for quite a few years. But yes, Rankin and Parker knew each other and supported each other in, in their work. All of John Rankin's nine sons were Underground Railroad conductors, and actually, it's the nine sons as they become teenagers who were doing the physical work of moving fugitive slaves from this location to the next station north. How many slaves, fugitive slaves, did they help over the years? Reverend Rankin wrote in his autobiography that over about a 40-year period, he and his family aided about 2,000 fugitive slaves passing through this farm setting. And he also wrote in his autobiography, I never lost a passenger. Wow. Now, what was his relationship with the John Rankin then? Um, they worked were they, together. Were, did they work together? Yeah. They worked together. They had a different opinions of how to do this. For John Rankin thought that um, going over and getting the slaves was illegal. Mm-hmm. But yet what he was doing up here on the hill was illegal, too. <laughs> so you, right. you kind of pick your legality. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. The last person that we interviewed for this podcast was the senior historian at the Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. His name is Carl Westmoreland, and I instantly liked Carl. He's a force of nature. He's intelligent, he's opinionated, and he can speak eloquently on topics ranging from muscle cars to uh, John Rankin and John Parker. Over the course of a wide-ranging interview, we talked about a lot of topics, but his uh, primary focus and a theme that kept coming up over and over again was either cooperation or a lack of cooperation. 
He speaks first about how John Rankin and John Parker cooperated, but then he gets into a deeper topic of how the town itself cooperated black people and white people, bankers, businessmen, clergymen, all working in conjunction for a common cause. Curious about the relationship between John Rankin and John Parker, and was there respect between them, or, or could you yeah, just there was. talk about that a little bit? Uh, Parker talked about a family, a black family, was pinned down on the uh, riverfront, and he wanted to get him up and out. And they spent the entire day, frankly, where if uh, the white people pursuing them could have gotten closer, they, uh, they suspected where they were. But uh, Parker and other black people had, had kept them at bay. Um, and in his uh, memory, he said, uh, I got to get him to Rankin, because Rankin, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, I could get him out of here. Um, to me, they were like, um, any association you see of strong people where they had roles they played, uh, but they understood the importance of the other person. Um, Parker uh, respected Collins and, and other people in the community. You know, first of all, he he was uh, not only a part of a numerical minority, but of a social minority, but um, he had strengths that they didn't have, and they recognized it, and vice versa. The banker's uh, granddaughter, Mrs. Zachman, who uh, would be my She'd now be about 100, she was about the same age as my mother. She'd now be 101, two, or somewhere along in there. But she told me 15 years ago, one day, she said, uh, Parker went to the bank and um, asked to see the president. And so, you know, the man asked him, he thought it was a social call. Um, he says, no, it's about money. And he says, well, just have, go work with one of the tellers and, and, and get me a letter together, and, and uh, you know, I'll take it to the board, and we'll... And he says, no. Um, they're starting a medical school for Negroes in Nashville, and I want you to match what I'm going to contribute. And it is called Meharry Medical School. It exists right now. Google it. And Mrs. Zachman, the granddaughter of the president of the bank, said, well, you know, Mr. Parker had a good reputation. And I said, and? Of, of course, he, he matched it. Wow. Um so that we don't get off on the wrong foot, Ripley had and still has elements in the community that are no different than they would be if, if they were in the most conservative state in America. Right. Um, but there, there's a, a, there's the power, I guess, of righteousness if, if that has prevails. 
During the course of our interview, Carl relayed a couple stories about his younger days, and uh, two stood out as being very impactful to me, and they probably were to him also. The first story is about living in Cincinnati prior to civil rights. Uh, Carl grew up during this whole time period. Martin Luther King spoke at the commencement speech at Carl's College. So Carl's deep in the heart of the civil rights movement. So he speaks a lot about what it was like living in Cincinnati, Ohio, prior to civil rights. And then he also tells a story about his father taking him to Ripley, Ohio for the first time and what happened in Ripley and the impact that it made on Carl's life. You know, I'm looking at the America I knew when I was a kid in in the 1950s, and I don't like it. Right. Tell me more about what America was like in the 1950s from your experience. Were you living in the Cincinnati area at that time? Yes. Were, was there overt discrimination against black yes. people in the 1950s yes, in Cincinnati? Northern Mississippi. And what do I mean by that? Right. Uh, we had, uh, in the real estate titles, uh, there were communities we couldn't live in because if the white owner wanted it to sell it to us, they couldn't transfer the title. So it was because of the title companies, too? That was because of our society in general. Right. I mean, but that's the mechanism they were using right. to keep you from buying that house, right. I guess, is what I mean. Um, if you went, uh, I have a grandson who's going to graduate from Cincinnati's uh, best high school, and one of the best high schools in America. It's called Walnut Hills. Okay. Uh, he's going to graduate in June. But when I was his age, uh, when the black kids, first of all, the black kids had to use the pool separately once a week. Right. And then when they finished, they emptied it. Wow. Um, well, but the same thing happened where I went to church. I was reared as an Episcopalian. Okay. I was, was an alkalite. And the diocese owned a swimming pool that was about a mile and a half from where I grew up. And we would, you know, once a week at, at the church, at this black Episcopal church, we would gather and we would walk to the swimming pool. Again, we would go in the pool, have a good time, and then um, inevitably, at if we if we left at noon, and I think it's about the time we left, at two o'clock, the man would blow the whistle, uh, and we would come out of the pool, and they would they, with us standing there, you know, drying off and stuff. <laughs> It started draining, draining the, the water. Pool. <laughs> right. <laughs> My dad took me to Ripley when I was five years old. Okay. And Daddy had a thirty-nine Ford coupe convertible with a rumble seat in the back. Yeah. And I'm in the back all by myself because my brother was. In, I'm six years older than my brother, so I was in the back with my little white Mickey Mouse glasses on. Yeah. Um, and Dad took me there to see um, this kiosk in Ripley, and it's the only kiosk I've seen, and I've, I've worked all over the world, but it's the only kiosk where I've seen where it salutes a historic black figure. Mm-hmm. His name was John Parker. Yes. Um, and they didn't do it uh, in response to civil rights demonstration or any of that. They did it in 1900. Right. Celebrating what this gentleman had done no. in the 1840s and 50s. Right. Um, and they had his name on with the white abolitionists in the community. Right. 
Um, so it was the first time I'd ever seen anything about us being equal to somebody else. Right. Um, and how old, tell me again, how old you were when, when you five. saw that? So you were five years old the yeah. first time you went to Ripley, Ohio. Right. Then. Okay. And Did that stick in your mind at the time? Sure. I took my sons. Yeah. I took my, their mother, my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, any woman I ever looked at more than once had to right. endure it. <laughs> uh, my son's guy, who's named for my father, has taken his children there. Carl's yeah. taken his children there. These clips tell a lot about Carl and explain a lot about his passion for history and preservation and conversation. Not only has Carl devoted his life to the study of abolitionism, slavery, and history, he also devoted several decades of his life to restoring historic buildings. Himself and his partner have restored over 350 historic buildings and neighborhoods that really needed the help. In the spring of 2019, Roots of American Music and the Ernest Tube live directed disc recording crew traveled to Ripley and put on a program that included music and conversation about the Underground Railroad, John Rankin, and John Parker. Carl Westmoreland was gracious enough to be one of the speakers at this presentation, and his talk, although it was only about six minutes long, was powerful. We're going to end our story about John Rankin, John Parker, and Ripley, Ohio with the monologue that Carl presented at this get-together. It's powerful, and listen to the whole thing and absorb these powerful words from a man who's lived through all of it. Our next speaker is Carl Westmoreland, who is the senior historian at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. He is a longtime uh, advocate for historic preservation, he's helped to preserve communities in his hometown of Cincinnati. He has traveled the world speaking out against and studying and lecturing on the Underground Railroad and on all the issues of slavery. He loves Ripley. We love Carl. <laughs> One of Ripley's best friends, Carl Westmoreland. Uh, the song, Illinois River, all you needed was a fender bass and a snare drum, and it was on. <laughs> the violin came from Africa. Uh, and then it went to the symphony halls and went to all kinds of places, and to the back room bars, uh, to the weekend retreats. It was a universal instrument, and it's used by various uh, racial groups with the same intensity, uh, but with different styles. But the messages are pretty much the same. The song uh, Illinois talked about working all week, and, but having uh, it, it one day where you only had to work a half day and got a full day's pay. That's a universal longing to working class men and women, regardless of race, class, uh, or color. Ripley's about has been about recognizing our differences and celebrating them with a common denominator that all human beings need, and that is the right to be free, the right to be able to sing, pray, or do what you want to do when you want to do it. And we're still struggling to achieve that. But you are in what we call a living museum. And what do I mean by that? 
when you leave here, the houses you have passed saw John Parker, saw John Rankin, saw all the families that even though they were different, they were here for a reason that they wanted to be able to farm the land, to work on the river, to do things of constructive nature, to pray free. And we're still struggling to do that, primarily because we don't talk to each other. We don't recognize what we have in common. I'm a cousin to Piano Red Westmoreland Perry, a 1930s, 40s, and 50 blues piano player uh, who was the son of my great-grandmother's sister, and they were emancipated at Stone Mountain, Georgia, where my great-grandfather was Westmoreland's blacksmith. We share struggles in Ireland, in Germany, in England. Before we came here, we don't talk about it. And we don't talk about what we have in common. When John Parker came to town, he brought skills with him. Uh, Dewey didn't have time to tell you that he has three patents still in existence. He didn't bother to tell you, or he didn't have time to tell you, that there were two more patents that were stolen from him while he was owned by somebody else. Because enslaved people couldn't sign contracts. They couldn't even get married. They jumped the broom. That, that was their ceremony. But you had people on this ground who saw to it that you not only uh, were physically free, but John Rankin had the nerve to open a college and a school, and he let black people attend it. And we're still struggling with that. Every time a black kid, more than two or three show up, the school suddenly turns one color. But everybody there is looking for the opportunity to learn and grow so they can become a part of the building of this place we call America. My life's work has focused on preserving what has made us special. When I was a little boy of five years old in 1942, I went to a place I have not seen like it anywhere in the world. I went to the kiosk here in Ripley with my dad, and he showed me the name of John Parker. And John Parker is listed with the community leaders of this town, the abolitionists, who helped create the kind of environment that we would like to celebrate. There are no more kiosks anywhere in this country celebrating the life of a black man during the antebellum era. None. So what do we know about each other? Not very much. Because we would understand we're not each other's enemy. We would understand that we all have mountains to climb, rivers to swim, and sometimes we need help so that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren can stand as proud people who've helped build this special place. Thank you.
Well, I don't think there would be any better way to wrap up this episode than what Carl just said. So let's leave it at that. I'm glad I made the journey. Everybody from Roots of American Music is glad they made the journey. And I hope that you are glad that you made this journey in this podcast also. This was deep. This was great stuff. I learned a whole bunch. I hope you did too. So let's exit today with a little more music. And our featured artist, Amethyst Kia, has a little perspective, just like Carl Westmoreland did, about how people just need to listen to each other and cooperate. And then she'll leave us with a song called The Worst, which <laughs> may not be, uh, you know, the best way to go out, but it's a great song and it's about relationships. And we don't have to expect the worst out of people. I think the Ripley story tells us we can expect the best out of people. What kind of challenges do you think that even today that we face that, you know, that we can take inspiration from these people? Like there were some good people doing some good work here. Like what, what kind of good work do you think we can all do today to get along a little bit better? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, you know, just listening to people's stories. I mean, I think a, a big issue that I see just just generally speaking is that when people talk about um when people even talk about slavery or talk about segregation, there's either people that get upset and don't want to talk about it or there's people that get defensive. And say, oh, well, I didn't have anything to do with it. And I think the real story here is looking at how, looking at how um, these, these systems that were used to enslave and oppress people and largely based on their ancestry and how those attitudes and feelings get passed down to generations and why there are so many people that are still at a disadvantage because of those past decisions that were passed down. And even though lots of people, there's certainly been lots of amazing and positive changes and good people to continue to do good work. But I feel like right now the conversation of race in this country um, is, seems just as divisive as it ever was. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that I hear, you know, are, are based out of not really listening to what someone has to say when someone is telling their story. Um, if a black person is telling their story um, that lives in an urban community, if they're telling their story about things that are happening to them and the way that they're treated in certain instances, and if a white person who's never had that experience continues to, you know, say, oh, well, that's not true, continues to dismiss their story. There's got to be more people listening and understanding stories and coming together with that. And I feel like listening is a huge part of that.
Wow, what an episode. Thanks for listening to episode four of the Ohio Heritage Music Project, A Journey to Ripley, Many Steps to Freedom. My name is Clint Holly, and I've been your host for all of the episodes of the Ohio Heritage Music Project. If you have not listened to the other three episodes of the Ohio Heritage Music Project, please go to www.rootsofamericanmusic.org and listen to the other three episodes. They include The Ghost of Frank Lloyd Wright, Following the Crumbs, and A Fighting Heart, The Johnny Kilbane Story, and The Irish-American Experience in Cleveland, Ohio. All episodes were produced by Roots of American Music in conjunction with the Ohio Arts Council. 
For this episode, we have a lot of people to thank. The Ohio History Connection, Betty Campbell from the John Rankin House, Dewey Scott from the John Parker House, Carl Westmoreland, Senior Historian at the Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, Kevin Richards, the Artistic Director of Roots of American Music. He came up with the initial concept for this episode. John McDonald, President of Roots of American Music, and Dave Polster, as always, for being part of the Ernest Tube Live Direct-to-Disc crew and for mastering these episodes for iTunes. Roots of American Music is a nonprofit organization based in Northeast Ohio dedicated to the preservation and education of Roots music. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please consider a donation to Roots of American Music to keep these podcasts coming. So until next time, have a great day. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.